Amen. I was singing along with that great hymn. You know, that great hymn was written by a great man, by King David. And he was a man after God's own heart, and he followed the Lord. And that's why the promise, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's a promise for those who are following the Lord. Those Christians that are backslidden, those Christians that are half-hearted, those Christians that are trying to live for the world and live for God, they can't cash in on that promise. That promise is meant for Christian men and women who are following the Lord, like how King David followed the Lord. Then they also can claim that promise of goodness and mercy. Well, tonight we are in chapter 19 of Revelation And the title is The End of the Tribulation, Part 2. And we're going to finish up this great chapter. I hope you have your Bible there and have a notepad and a pen. Take a few notes. This is exciting stuff. I'm watching in the news daily to see what's happening with Israel. And as you know, they got uh, the first major leg of a peace agreement kind of in place there between Israel and the UAE, and they're working on several other Arab nations. And um, Kushner uh, said that he hopes to have uh, another um, uh, Arab nation on board in the next couple of months. Oh, beloved, it may come sooner than that, but things are winding up, it looks like. Have your bags packed. Don't put your hope in this world. Listen, for those of you who are working hard till you hit 65 and get your retirement. Listen, forget that. Because in maybe weeks, days, months, the Lord Jesus may be here in the clouds to call us home. So what good is a pension going to do? Huh? Let's put our faith in a coming Savior. We're going to be looking at the coming Savior. Now, last week, we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 19. We pointed out that chapter 19 is like a bridge in between the tribulation and the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The millennial, that means like a thousand. Uh, So the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Chapter 19 is the go-between, the bridge between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. And it's very exciting. There seems to be four major events. Last week, we looked at the first two of them. Number one, the rejoicing of heaven over Babylon's destruction. If you, if you missed that uh, message, make sure that you watch that. Go online and go back and watch last Wednesday's message. The, the first major event was the destruction of Babylon and heaven's rejoicing over it. And the second major event was the marriage supper of the lamb. And we looked at that and the bride. And who is that bride? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to go and watch the message and find out. Well, tonight, there, we're, we're going to look at the last two major events. The return of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the armies of the world, which takes place at Armageddon, by the way. And number two, the destruction of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Let's have a moment of prayer and let's ask God to open the eyes of our understanding and to bless our hearts as we study. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come to you in that wonderful name of Jesus, that Lord of Lords, that King of Kings, that eternal Son of God with power, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our God, our coming King. 
We come to you, Heavenly Father, asking that you would please bless the words of chapter 19 and other verses that we look at. Bless them to our hearts and encourage us to keep scanning the eastern skies, looking for our Savior, because he may come any day now. And so please bless us as we study for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty then, let's jump right in and let's begin here with the first main section, which would actually be number three in the list in chapter 19. But for us tonight, it's, it's only two major events, the last two. So the first one is the return of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the armies of the world, which is chapter 19, verses 11 to 18. Verses 11 to 18. Look please with me at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Here you have heaven opening. Oh my, oh my, and the Lord Jesus Christ referred to as faithful and true on a white horse. Why a white horse? Because he is victorious, beloved. That's why he's on a white horse. In the old cowboy uh, movies, uh, in the, uh, the years ago, before they had color, they had black and white movies and they had a problem. Uh, the audience couldn't distinguish who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. And so the, the Hollywood people, they had a br bright idea. They put the bad guys in the black hats and the good guys in the white hats. And that seemed to, to uh, uh, say it all right there. The, the good guys are in the white hats. Well, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ on the white horse. Now, someone who's going to say, well, wait a minute. I thought the Antichrist came along in chapter six there and he was on a white horse. Yeah, we'll talk about him in a minute. All right, hold on to that thought. But uh, here we have the Lord Jesus and he's come to make war. Can you imagine that? The lovely, sweet Jesus, uh, mild shepherd, loving. He's on a white horse now, folks, and he's coming back to earth and he's coming to make war. That's what it says here in verse 11, that he doth judge and make war. So you say, who's he going to war with? If you look down quickly at verse 19, you'll see. And here the armies of the world, kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the, that on the horse and against his army. So the Lord Jesus is coming back to make war against them. Now, something interesting here, I just point this out. There are four times in the New Testament where we have the heavens opening and each one of them involves Jesus. The first one is in Matthew chapter 3, uh, 16. The second one is in John chapter 1, verse 51. The third one is in Acts 7, 56. And the fourth one is in 1911 of Revelation. Now, I'll repeat that again, because some of you didn't write it down. So I'll repeat it again for you. Here we go. You look them up later. Matthew 3.16, John 1.51, Acts 7.56, and Revelation 19.11. Those are the four times in the New Testament when the heavens are open, and each one involves Jesus, and you'll want to look them up. They're very important. Now, something that I find very interesting is that nowhere in the Gospels or in the rest of the New Testament do we have any description of what Jesus was like when he was on earth. 
the Lord Jesus, he came and spent 33 and a half years on earth. There's no recorded description of him, his height, his weight, the color of his eyes, color of his hair, his skin color. There, there's no written description. Isn't that interesting? And yet here in the book of Revelation in chapter one, and again here in chapter 19, we have this vivid description of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting. Now, if you look at verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now quickly turn back to chapter one and you'll see that in verse number 14. Revelation chapter one, verse 14, the description of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Now it actually begins here in verse 13 and we'll pick up in verse 14. It says his head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now there are, let me see here, 10. Yeah, there's, it's a tenfold description of Jesus Christ between verses 13 and 16. And you can number them right there in your Bible, but there's 10 descriptive items of the Lord Jesus here. And in verse 14, number five are his eyes as a flame of fire. We turn back to chapter 19 of Revelation and verse 12. Here they are again. His eyes were as a flame of fire. See that? And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. Now, this thing about the the crowns on his head were many crowns. We've studied this now. This is old history for us because we've studied it. But in chapter 12 and verse 3, we found Satan, the dragon, had seven crowns. In chapter 13, verse 1, we learned of the Antichrist, and he had ten crowns. But here's the Lord Jesus, and it says he has many crowns. Why isn't it given a number? Because I suspect there were too many for John to count. If there had been three crowns, five crowns, ten crowns, I think that John would have written that down, but there are many crowns. The Lord Jesus has many, many more crowns than what Satan or the Antichrist could ever have. Oh, how we love Jesus. John couldn't number the crowns that are on Jesus' head. Where these crowns come from? I have a thought. When we get to heaven, those of us who are living for Jesus and trying to serve him will be given reward crowns. In the Bible, it seems to indicate that we'll cast our crowns at his feet. So quite possibly, he'll lovingly pick up these crowns and put them on his head. And he'll proudly display our crowns on his head. That's only a thought. I I couldn't prove that to you from scripture. It's just a thought that I've had for a number of years. But I don't see why it couldn't happen. The Lord Jesus wearing our crowns as he comes back to earth. Now, also in this verse, you'll notice it says that there's a name written that no one knew. Interesting. Now, did you know that the name Jehovah was unknown to God's people? In fact, to anyone on earth. No one knew. They'd never heard of the name Jehovah until God revealed it. It was a name that no one knew. It was a mystery, a hidden, a secret name. 
And then did you also know that before the Savior was born 2,000 years ago, God, through the angel, revealed his name, Jesus. Otherwise, no one knew. No one knew what his name would be. Now, names are important because they reveal things. And especially with God, his names reveal things about him. Here's a name that no no one knows. There's more to God than what we know. There's a hidden aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ in that name that we don't know what it is. But that's all right. One day we will. Now let's move on to verses 13 and 14. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood And his name is called the word of God. Now here's the vesture dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? Some think it's Jesus' blood. Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. When Jesus went to heaven, he took all his blood as an offering and brought it into the temple and there presented his blood. Now there are some good preachers who think this is Jesus' blood, but there are other good preachers who don't think it's Jesus' blood. Well, then whose blood could it be? I believe it's the blood of Jesus' enemies. I mean, he's coming back as a man of war. He's coming back as a conquering king. He's coming to make war against all the earth's armies and his vestures dipped in blood. And I believe that this is the enemy's blood. Now, let me read for you Isaiah 63, verses 1, 2, and 3. Who is this that cometh from Edom? Edom is that southern part of Israel. By the way, the word Edom means red. Interesting that we should be talking about a vesture dipped in blood and a place called Edom. Uh, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the wine press alone and of the people there was none with me for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. See that their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain my raiment. And that passage there speaks of when Christ comes back to earth. That's in Isaiah 63. And so here we learn that also he has another name. And his name is called the word of God. Now, if you'll remember back in the gospel of John, in fact, look, turn there with me, would you please? Let's go to John chapter one and let's look at it. John chapter one and verse one. You got it? You got it now? Are you ready? We got to move along here. John chapter one, verse one. Read it out loud with me. Would you please read it now? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now turn down to verse 14. Verse 14. Read this out loud with me now, please. Read out loud. I can hear you. You know, you don't think I can. I can hear you. Read it with me. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the Lord Jesus. And so back to Revelation chapter 19, he's got another name here. It's the word of God. And so it says, um, let me see where we leave off here, folks. Uh, Verse 14, there we are. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen. Hey, we've seen that before, haven't we? White and clean. Now these armies here, these armies, oh my, what are these armies? Uh, I believe that, uh, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute who these armies are, I suppose. But um, (laughs) uh, let's... uh, Let's look at one other verse, shall we? Let's flip back a few pages because we've got the Lord Jesus coming back to earth. Go back to Jude. I want you to go back just one page before Revelation and I want you to go to Jude. And the Lord Jesus is coming back. He's a conquering king. His vesture is dipped in blood. He's got armies with him, following him, all on white horses here. And I believe that what we have is a fulfillment of Jude 14 and 15. Watch this. Verse 14 of Jude. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands, plural, with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him that means against Jesus and we've got a fulfillment now finally of Enoch's prophecy mentioned here in Jude we see it in Revelation chapter 19 the Lord Jesus coming back to earth now this is the end of the seven year tribulation and he's got all his armies with him And his eyes are flaming fire. And he's got all these armies coming with him. And here we have him here. Hey, you know something? In chapter 6, we do have a picture of the Antichrist on a white horse with a bow. No arrows, mind you, but a bow. Some people have confused these two riders and think possibly that the one in chapter 6 is the same as the one in chapter 19. Uh Uh-uh, they're different. They're different. You see, the, um, the one in uh, chapter 6, he comes forth to conquer. That's what it says. He comes forth to conquer, but he ends in doom and destruction. This one in chapter 19, he comes forth to conquer, and he will conquer all his enemies. Hallelujah. Why is that? Because they're two different riders. And this one here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Further, let's move on. Verse 15. It says, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Now we saw that in chapter 1, and I believe it was verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword. That was part of the description that John gave us when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote all this down. And here we have the same Jesus coming back here in chapter 19 and this sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we have a comparison there. And of course, it says also um, that he should, uh, that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them with a rod of iron. That refers, of course, to his millennial kingdom rule. But also, I think it begins right here at the very end of the tribulation, just before the millennial kingdom begins. He's got the rod of iron and he's coming down and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Now that sounds a lot like what we just read in Isaiah chapter 63, a little bit earlier, but uh, these uh, armies that are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ, who are these armies? Well, folks, these armies are going to be us going to be the bride. Now we've already studied what the bride is. So you'll, if you've forgotten, you'll have to go back last week and look up. It's going to be the old Testament saints. It's going to be the tribulation saints. It's going to be all the saved are going to be coming back. These are the armies plural here, but you'll notice the armies don't have any weapons. How about that? Armies without arms. Huh? That was a joke. There's only one weapon. And that's the sharp sword that proceedeth forth from the mouth of the Savior. Say, why don't the armies have any weapons? No swords, no spears, no bows. Why is it that Jesus is the only one with a weapon? Because, beloved, the battle is the Lord's. In this battle, he's the only one that can do the job. And this sword that comes forth, you'll see, he, with it he will slay all of the, uh, the enemies. Now, this matter here about the rod of iron, I'd like you to take a moment, turn back to Psalm, would you please? Go back to Psalms and go to chapter 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And let's see here. Psalm 2, let's begin at verse 8. Follow this along. Watch this carefully. Here the heavenly father is, is speaking, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. By the way, this, this has nothing to do with tonight's sermon, but I made a little notation in my Bible here. I'm praying for land in a building for Grace Baptist Church. The 104 building comes to mind. I'm telling you, that building has tremendous potential to bring awesome unbelievable glory to God. And with it, we can do so much more, more, listen, exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think through that one building. So keep praying, beloved, keep praying. Now, he says here, uh, I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a, a potter's vessel. This is a reference to when the Lord Jesus comes back and rules as king of kings in the millennial kingdom. Listen, we wonder today, why is it that bad men, evil men seem to be able to commit horrible crimes and get away with it? Why? Why is justice so blind? Huh? Why does it take months and years sometimes to bring criminals to justice if we can catch them? Why? You wonder no longer in the millennial kingdom, 
If there's any kind of crime, it'll be punished instantly. People won't be sought for and then arrested and then put in a holding cell and then finally brought up before a a local judge and then some preliminaries will be made and they'll be put into a perhaps a, even a, a prison for, for a year until their, their, their case comes to court and then it'll come to court and then the opposing sides will argue back and forth and a judgment will be made. No, 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 beloved. That's never going to happen again. Imagine that. No more, no more jobs uh, uh, for um, Supreme Court judges or even lower court judges. Ah, uh, I'm sorry, there's going to be no need for it. There's, there's going to be no need for a, an army and a police force in the millennial kingdom. Won't be any need for any of that because peace will flow as a river. And where there is rebellion, it'll be put down just like that. He will rule with a rod of iron. Well, we're going to be speaking more about the millennial kingdom in uh, later uh, messages. We still got three chapters left, 20, 21, 22 of Revelation. So stay tuned, more to follow on that. That's good. But here for tonight, anyhow, we see that the Lord Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. Now, if you go back, please, to Revelation, but chapter 14, I want you to see this wine press again, if you would. Look at chapter 14, and please look here at verse 19 and 20. Here we learn, it says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Whoa! What does that mean? Well, we're going to explain that again in just a, just a little bit. Did you know that it was 2,000 years ago that the Lord Jesus came and presented himself meekly riding on a donkey? He came into Jerusalem presenting himself as a meek and mild savior. And of course, they rejected him and essentially said, we will not have this man reign over us. In fact, they had him crucified. That was 2,000 years ago. Well, he's coming back. Only this time he's not coming back as a meek and mild savior on a donkey. This time he's coming back as a victorious conquering king on a white stallion. Incredible how he's coming back here. Once again, listen to Isaiah chapter 64 verses 1, 2, and 3. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence when thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for. Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. Oh, oh, what a difference when Jesus comes back the second time. You know, it's so sad how blind the world is. It is so sad. Jesus came, offered himself, and listen, 
still to this day offers himself as a savior. And if you happen to be watching this broadcast and you know in your heart of hearts, you've never repented of your sin and trusted the Lord Jesus. Oh, my friend, I encourage you and urge you with all my heart. Do that. You need to be born again. Because if you fail to do your part, you'll be swept into that tribulation time. You may well end up taking the mark of the beast. You may well end up conscripted into the armies and find yourself in Armageddon one day and there to face the wrath of Almighty God as Jesus comes back with a sharp sword. Let's move on. Verse number 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, there are four names given here in the Lord, this chapter to the Lord Jesus. Verses 11, 12, 13, and 16. The verse 12 tells us that there's a name that we don't know. But we have three other names that are given. In verse 11, if you look at it, he's called faithful and true. See that? He's called faithful and true. And really, that's his dignity as the eternal son of God. In verse 13, we have his next name, the word of God. And we saw that in John chapter 1. And there's his incarnation when he was made flesh. The word became flesh. And now in verse 16, we have King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here you have him at his second coming, coming back to the earth. Just an interesting thought. Now in verse 17, we have an interesting thing happen. Look at it. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Imagine that. The little we know of the sun, we know it's a big ball of fire and it's constantly spewing out its flames. It's an awesome thing to see if you've ever seen any of those videos from those Hubble spacecrafts and telescopes and how they can get in, get close shots of the sun. Of course, nothing could, could survive in the sun, be burned right up as a crisp. We know that during the seven years of the tribulation, part of the sun is going to be darkened out. What's going to happen to it? Not quite sure, but part of it's going to be darkened out. Here's an angel. And God has given the privilege to this angel to go and stand in the sun and to make the following announcement. And so we, we find the angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice. And here's what he's, he's crying saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. This angel, whoever it is, I, we're not sure. I, I wish I knew. Maybe, maybe it's the archangel. I don't know. But it's a very special job given to this privileged angel to go and stand in the sun and to call for all of the fowls. These are the, what we would call the big birds. The birds of the world. They fly. He's calling for them. Oh, listen. Listen to me, beloved. Imagine the privilege. How happy this angel felt. 
to be tasked, to be commissioned, to be privileged with the opportunity to serve the Lord. My Christian friend, serve the Lord. It matters not what the job is. Serve the Lord. Any service for God is good. Let's do all the serving we possibly can. Keep on serving God, oh Christian friend. You'll be glad you did. You honestly will. Now the angel is calling for the fowls. And I believe there will be millions of them. Millions of these birds. What kind of birds are we talking? We're talking the kind that eat flesh and drink blood. And so that would include vultures, buzzards, eagles, hawks, a bird called a kite. It's another flesh-eating bird. And falcons as well. Listen, I got to tell you something interesting. Back in the 1970s, I was saved in 1975, April the 6th, 1975. Uh, in about a year later, 1976, I heard uh, a story. In fact, I got this little gospel tract entitled, Why All the Vultures? And it was written by a guy who had come from Israel and said, hey, hey, did you know that over in Israel, usually vultures will lay one or maybe two eggs, something like that. Well, they're laying like five and six, sometimes seven eggs. You know what that means. Coming of Jesus is right at hand because all these vultures, why are all these vultures? The, the population, I mean, they're giving birth to so many, many, many vultures. There's only one possible reason. And that's because the rapture is about to happen, the tribulation, and God's going to need all those vultures at the end of the tribulation. And news of this, spread everywhere. And I remember reading it and saying, wow, wow, wow. You know, Jesus is coming back any second now. Well, that's been 40 years. What happened was the guy who came from Israel and said, all these vultures, they're laying all these eggs. He was lying. I hate to say that, but he was lying. And the guy who who heard him and printed the tract. His name was Joel Darby. He never checked his source. He just believed what this guy told him and, and put it into a tract form, a gospel tract, and got it out the door. And he printed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these tracts. He was on a mission to make the world know that the, the vulture population is growing. Well, he really felt stupid afterward. When it finally came to light, he found out that this guy wasn't telling the truth. The vultures were not multiplying by, you know, all of this five-fold, ten-fold or something. And he really felt bad about that. You know, these uh, hoaxes and stories and myths and things, they're going around all the time. And you and I have to be very careful. Otherwise, we'll, we'll get sucked into these things. We have to be very careful of our sources. And uh, I'm, I have to tell you that it's happened to me where I've heard something and run with it only to find out later I shouldn't have. So be very careful, beloved, what kind of news items hmm, you hear. If it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> probably is too good to be true. Just check it out is all I'm saying. But this will really happen. The angel will call for millions of these uh, uh, blood-drinking, flesh-eating 
uh, fowls to come to the supper of the great king. Now, interesting, earlier in the chapter, verse 9, we saw the marriage supper of the lamb. That was a very happy event. But here we have another supper, and it's a very violent supper of destruction. Now, look at verse 18. It says here, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Here we have the flesh of kings. These are the same kings who in the previous chapter were bewailing and crying their eyes out over the destruction of Babylon. And they are so angry now. They're joining in with Antichrist and all of the other armies of the world. And they're gathered here to Armageddon. And captains and mighty men and even horses and millions of men. I'm sure they all have the 666 on them. Every single one of them. Now the word flesh is mentioned actually six times if you include verse 21. And I believe that the people of of the world chose to live for the flesh. They refused Christ. They refused salvation. They chose the flesh and now their flesh must die and their flesh must be destroyed. My Christian friend, let's not make that mistake. Let's not live for the flesh. Let's not live for the lusts of the flesh or the lusts of the eyes. Let's not live for the false hope of money, the lusts of money. Oh, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Now we have to finish there and quickly finish up here with the the second main event, which is actually number four, the fourth main event of chapter 19, the destruction of the Antichrist and the false prophet, verses 19 to 21. Now in 19, verse 19, we literally have Armageddon. And I saw the beast. And, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now turn back a page or two to chapter 16 and look at verse 16. There it is there, the very word. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now if you will remember, this is when those spirits of devils like frogs came out, the three of them, one out of the mouth of Satan, one out of the mouth of Antichrist, one out of the mouth of the false prophet. And these three frogs gathered together. They're evil spirits and they gathered the armies of the world together. But here is Armageddon. What is Armageddon? Well, it's the city of Megiddo or the valley of Megiddo. It's been the scene of many horrific battles It's referred to in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, as a type of woe, woe, on account of the overthrow and death of King Josiah, having taken place there in 2 Kings 23. King Ahaziah also died there in 2 Kings chapter 9. There, the Canaanitish kings were overthrown and and butchered in Judges chapter 5. The name Armageddon is therefore indicative of battle and slaughter. And there will be the complete overthrow of the Antichrist and his false prophet and all the armies of the earth. Revelation chapter 14 verses 18 to 20 spoke of this battle and the blood 
and how it spread for 1,600 furlongs. We read that earlier. That's 200 miles, folks. That's pretty much from Megiddo right down through Jerusalem. Oh, listen, we don't have time, but write down Isaiah 34. Write this down. Write it down. Write it down. Isaiah 34, verses 1 to 3 and verse 5. Look that up later. Folks, I believe with all my heart that Satan's plan at Armageddon is not to destroy all of the people of the world. That's not what he's after. He's trying to destroy the Jews. Satan has always tried to destroy the Jews because if he can destroy the Jews, he's broken the promise of God, the covenant of God, and thereby he overthrows God. That is his goal. That is what he's trying to do is he's trying to overthrow God. Why do you think Satan tempted Jesus in the mount there? And finally, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, these belong to me. I'll give them all to you if you bow down and worship. Bypass the cross, all the suffering. I'll give all, you, all of these things to you. Satan has always tried to overthrow God. But you know, when Jesus returns in the nick of time, to save the Jews, to save Israel from destruction. That's when Antichrist and all of his armies will see Jesus coming in the air and they'll turn their guns onto Jesus because that's all they'll have is bullets and bombs and rockets, things like that, and they'll turn those toward Jesus. But Jesus will destroy them with that sharp sword. Look at verse 20. And the beast, that's the Antichrist, was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The Antichrist and false prophet are thrown directly into the lake of fire. They, they are not killed. They're not destroyed with the sword. While still alive, they're taken and they're cast into the lake of fire. Now, I believe that this proves a couple of things. Number one, the lake of fire does not mean annihilation. Some people and some religions teach that, that the lake of fire, if you're thrown in there, you cease to exist. It's annihilation. It's not. It's not. Because if you look, please, at chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. See that? And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is after a thousand years of being in the lake of fire. So this, this proves to us that the lake of fire is literal. It's not figurative. And it proves to us that it, it is eternal. It does not mean annihilation. Now, something very important. I've mentioned this before, that the Antichrist and the false prophet bypass the great white throne judgment. Every unsaved human must pass through the white, great white throne judgment to be judged and then to be cast in a lake of fire. Antichrist and false prophet do not go to the great white throne. They go directly into the lake of fire. Say, why is that? Well, my belief on it is that 
The Antichrist and false prophet are human bodies inhabited by demons. You say, Pastor, what if you're wrong? Then I'm wrong. That's as simple as that. But every unsaved human has got to go through the great white throne judgment. These two don't. Why is that? Because Satan doesn't go through the great white throne judgment. None of the demons go through great white throne judgment. They all go directly into the lake of fire. And here's antichrist and false prophet bypassing the great white throne judgment. Now I find that very interesting. And so just a thought here, but these guys are human bodies with demons behind the controls, steering things. Finally, we get to the last verse here. And the remnant were slain. Now these are the armies, the remnant on the, on the earth. They were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Kind of a gruesome picture, but this is the supper of the great God where tens of millions of dead bodies on the ground are gorged upon. The blood flows for some 200 miles and the birds the, of, of prey here, the vultures and the buzzards and they're all over it and gorging and eating. The animals are all over this stuff. And God is going to use the animals to clean up the land. Folks, believe it or not, this is a time of triumph over Satan and over evil. This is a time when truth and peace will come to the earth and the Prince of Peace will reign. Hallelujah. My Christian friend, when it's your turn to leave the earth, when your day comes and it's your turn, will your life really have counted for something? Huh? Are you living your life for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you doing what he would have you do? Or are you just kind of going about acting like a worldly person would? Which is it? Are you trying to do both? <laughs> a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Have you noticed? This world, with all it has to offer, will soon be destroyed. Where is your heart, beloved? Where is your treasure tonight? Are you sending up building materials ahead of you for your mansion? Will there be any stars in your crown? Are you bringing forth fruit for his honor and his glory? Good thing to think about tonight. Would you pray with me now?